Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. His name is Dr. Andrew Hammond. He is the current historian and curator for the International Spy Museum. He served in the Royal Air Force, uh, was on secondment to both the British Army and the Royal Navy. He's held positions uh, teaching on both sides of the Atlantic. He, he held fellowships at the British Library. He now um, hosts a podcast for the International Spy Museum called SpyCast. And he has a brand new book coming out sometime later in the year called Struggles for Freedom. Andrew, welcome to AFIA Now. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure to join you, sir. Andrew, you have a very interesting background. How did you get involved in intelligence? I mean, I think I've always found it fascinating. I remember as a young boy, I got like probably like a lot of people, I got a book out of the public library uh, on, you know, tradecraft, basically. And I remember coming across this technique where I would get a pencil and I would make a mark underneath a drawer and I would leave the door, the, the drawer open a little bit so that I could tell if my mother was raking through my drawers. So, so, so there's that part of it. But then uh, much later on, as you said, I was in the Royal Air Force and I was in a photographic intelligence unit when 9-11 happened. And I think that that just, I mean, that led me to, I, I felt like an actor in a play, but I didn't really understand the plot. Um, and ever since then, in one way or another, I've been trying to understand the plot. But that period made me interested in the broader dynamics within which intelligence plays out because it's an inherently international uh, game. And I think that it also just made me thinking about imagery intelligence uh, and then thinking about all the other platforms that are used to bring in information, whether it be human beings, uh, bugs, cameras, uh, satellites, whatever. So there's there's two parts there. There's the uh, reading too many books as a kid and, uh, on the subject, and then there's um, a little bit of real-world experience. Andrew, your book starts off um, in 1979 in the Soviet invasion uh, of Afghanistan and deals uh, in large part with um, uh, Operation Cyclone the CIA uh, support to the Mujahideen. Tell our viewers a little bit more about that. Yeah. So so I know that this is something that many of the, the listeners or viewers will know about, but I just, I just find it really, really, really interesting. In the year 1979, like just, just starting from there. So 1979, if you think about the, the geopolitics of the Cold War, um, and this is something I've went through in many presidential libraries, many uh, pa congressional papers, spoke about in many interviews. The the northern tier um, and the Cold War chessboard. So we're talking about Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan. So let's think about 1979 and the US position in that area. So the, the uh, hostage crisis obviously happens in 1979, begins then. The U.S. Embassy in Islamabad is burned to the ground in the here. Um, and the American ambassador in uh, Kabul in Afghanistan is killed that year, uh, Adolphus Stubbs. 
And then later on in that year, the Soviets invade Afghanistan, which, you know, Carter goes on to describe as the greatest threat to the peace since the Second World War. So I think it's just this, it's this monumental year um, for, for, for the West, for the Cold War, for American foreign policy, and of course for the, the CIA, because to me this comes along at such an interesting time. You've had the, the Church and Pike uh, committees in 75, um, the American global position in the 70s seems much less assured. There's reverses in Vietnam, uh, Africa, the Horn of Africa, uh, South Asia. And, it, you know, some people, even even people like Kissinger are, are, you know, talking about has the historical correlation of forces shifted decisively against the United States. So it comes along at an interesting time when America is a little bit on the back foot, when the CIA is a little bit on the back foot, Church and Pike, uh, Rockefeller, um, you've got Stansfield Turner, someone that seems being out of touch. Um, there's changes within the agency. He wants to shift it towards technical intelligence. And then you have this pivot in 1979. And then on the back of that, you have Reagan, Casey. You have a very different approach to intelligence. Um, you have a very different approach to covert action. But, but, but I think that another thing that I find interesting is I've traced some a lot of the roots of the things that are that are that they attribute to Reagan. The the genesis of them comes in the Carter era. Uh, the the narrative that gets attached to the to the Soviet Afghan war starts in the Carter era. You can go through documents uh, where Brzezinski and Carter are talking about. Do we call them insurgents, rebels, freedom fighters, whatever? Uh, but also the covert action, so it goes from non-lethal aid to lethal aid. Um, and then because of the Soviet invasion, the Carter administration becomes more hardline. Um, Brzezinski gets the upper hand, Vance uh, resigns in 1980. So I think that there's just a really interesting shift that takes place. And I think that the CIA, Afghanistan and Operation Cyclone are just are just really, really fascinating because of when they happen and how they happen. And you see this pivot within world politics, within US foreign policy, and then also within the world of intelligence, because Carter comes in saying that he's going to, you know, tame the CIA. And then you have Casey who says he's going to unleash the CIA. So you see this pivot within the agency as well, which I think is really, really interesting. Andrew, I think our audience would be very interested in knowing um, how you went about your uh, research. What kind of archives were you able to access? What individuals were you able to interview that uh, helped you build the story? Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is something that started off with a degree of naivete. You know, I thought that uh, it was going to be relatively easy, but it involved a lot of lateral thinking, a lot of thinking outside of the box. Um, so I think that I started off with the presidential libraries, um, the stuff that was declassified at Reagan, at Carter, were were quite important and quite helpful. And then after that, I started looking at congressional papers. So I looked at Gordon Humphreys, um, Charlie Wilson's, um, a bunch of other um, people on the Hill that were involved in, in this particular covert action. Then I started looking at 
papers of people in the administration. Um, and one of the, the 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 set of papers that you're interested in maybe and that maybe they may be most interested in is I was at the Hoover Institute quite a lot and I kept saying, when are the Casey papers getting released? When are the Casey papers getting released? And one day, and this is due to no skill or anything on my part, but I went there one day a few months later and said, almost expecting the same answer, you know, the family's not signed off yet. I was like, have the Casey papers been released yet? And they said, we just opened them this morning. So I don't know if, it, you know, serendipity or, or whatever. So I went through Bill Casey's papers. They, of course, provide an incomplete picture. So I thought, just speak to people. And it started off speaking to people that were on the NSC or people that were in the DOD or people that were involved in the Stingers. And then I'll, I'll give you one good example. I spoke to Charles Cogan, who's unfortunately passed away since I spoke to him. But he was the chief of the Near East and uh, South Asia Division, like yourself, Jim, between 79 and 84. And he was very gracious, very, um, very helpful. Of course, he wasn't especially forthcoming about uh, the covert election, but he introduced me to other people and then they introduced me to other people. And then before you knew it, I was speaking to people that were in Peshawar in 86 or people that were, you know, in Islamabad or in, in Afghanistan um, just as the as the covert action came to an end and so forth. So so using all of them, I just try to I try to rub away as much parts of the hidden mosaic of the covert action as I could. And then of course there's been excellent stuff that's came out, like Steve Cole's book, Ghost Wars, um, Bruce Rydell's book, What We uh, I think it's called What We Won. I've not read it for a few years. Um, and then also some of the stuff that's been done in the Russian archives. Um People like uh, Sir Roderick Braithwaite, the last British ambassador to the Soviet Union, his book Afghanistan looks at the that goes through the Soviet archives and looks at the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. So, so you do get a picture, and of course, it's one of those things. If you really want to get as much of a full picture as you can, you have to study something that happened probably two hundred years ago. <laughs> but I'm more interested in modern stuff. So this is the this is the pitfalls and and challenges of of doing intelligence history and especially modern intelligence history. It's great to hear uh, Chuck Cogan's name. Uh, he was a great CIA officer and um, actually one of my bosses, of course, and was a fellow and taught at Harvard for a number of years after he retired from the government. Were you able to interview any of the other uh, agency officers involved in the program whose names you can mention? Yeah, I interviewed Frank Anderson, who's also sadly passed away. Um, and he was, he, he, again, you know, I... I've read about about Frank, um, and I only had a one-hour conversation, so I'm not saying that I've captured the essence of him, and I'm sure many people that listen to this or watch it will know him much better than me, but I found him such an interesting figure, because he was a real, he was real, um, he, was, he was classy, he was to the point. Um, he was also quite colourful. He One of the phrases that I remember is he said, um, Gilbadine's a mother, and you can quote me on that. Um, <laughs> but then I also know that alongside that hard charging part of him, there was 
he was known as a diplomat, as someone that could, you know, that wasn't just a blunt instrument, someone that knew that intelligence had a role to play in alleviating or mitigating or managing conflict and, and tension within the international system. So I really, really enjoyed speaking to him. And then, of course, it was quite interesting speaking to different people that were the chief of the Near East and South Asia division, because you get different generational insights, different views, different time periods. And and Chuck and Frank were quite different. Um, so those were two ones that stick out. And another one that sticks out actually was uh, Vince Canestraro. Um, I interviewed him by phone, spoke to him a couple of times, and he was really, really interesting because he was just so thoughtful. So this was... This was during the period uh, of the war, one of the high points of the war, the, the latest war in Afghanistan. And he was saying, you know, he was just talking about ripples in the pond of time and how it's so interesting for him, who was on the NSC, who was involved in this program, to see the after effects, the second and third order effects cascading down throughout history. So... I just found him really, really thoughtful. And then he was also speaking about terrorism during the 1980s, Lebanon, Libya, and then coming up to 9-11. So he was also looking at it through the lens of the evolution of the counterterrorism and the evolution of the CIA and its relationship to counterterrorism. So, so just so many fascinating people. Well, it's great to hear both of those gentlemen's uh names as well. I served with them both. Frank was a quintessential uh, Near East Division officer and Arabist and actually one of my mentors. Vince and I actually served together. There were many, many important uh, aspects of the Afghan program. In your view, what was the turning point? What really caused things to start uh, changing in Afghanistan for the Mujahideen? I think that or this is not always the most satisfying answer for people because they want to look at one specific thing and say this was the the drop that made the cup run over. But to get to the drop that makes the cup run over, all the other drops have to come before it. So I think that it's the it's the covert action as a as a totality. I don't think it was just the introduction of the stingers. Some of the work that's been done in the Soviet archives. Um, you know, has suggested that the decision to withdraw was made before the Stingers were introduced to the battlefield. So, so that's another interesting historical question. Were they pushing on an open door or did it just carry over the finish line? There's all kinds of analogies that we can use, but I think that the Stingers were, were important. And even, for example, in a morale dimension, um, it's quite interesting to just see photographs of these Afghan uh, fighters um, wearing their traditional um, clothing with this state-of-the-art uh, piece of weaponry that that's bringing down um, really advanced Soviet helicopters. So I think that I think that for me the stingers are interesting and important, but I think that it's the whole thing that is that is that that made the difference. It's the beginning. It's the it's the non-lethal aid. Then it's the the lethal aid, and then it's the program getting continually ratcheted up. Um, and that's a whole interesting process in and of itself. Different people within the agency, some are a bit more cautious, some are a bit more hard charging, even within the administration as well. 
Yeah, I think I think that for me, it's the whole covert action. That's where I would lay it. I think it would be unfair to say, here's this one moment where everything changed because that one moment where everything changed was as a result of everything else that came before it. So I would say that it was the whole covert action that, that made the difference. Now, an interesting but probably a little known factoid is that the agency had to introduce mules into Afghanistan because the uh, terrain was so rough, they really couldn't deliver all of the equipment to the endpoint using uh, trucks. And so they imported a bunch of mules to help deliver the equipment all the way you know, into that very rough uh, mountainous terrain. I told you off camera that uh, in 1986, um, a group of us were shown an early um, homemade video recording of the... Uh, very early downing of a Russian helicopter in Afghanistan using a stinger. You know, we've seen many photos like that today, but in 1986, that was very new and frankly, jaw-dropping for us to see that for the first time. I, I, I can't even imagine what it was like. It must have been, it must have been exhilarating and also just, yeah. <laughs> It must just have been such a fascinating thing because, I, you know, I find this so interesting. I was only a young boy at the time, but I remember watching this, you know, news about the Soviet Afghan war on the TV screen. And and I have to say that even as a young boy, it felt it felt great to feel like the Soviets were just getting it socked to them by somebody. You know, <laughs> I think that for me, that was interesting. And, and just when you were talking there, it made me, it reminded me of, when I went to look through Charlie Wilson's papers and there's a lot in there about the mules uh, that get sent to Afghanistan and, and his role in all of that. There's pictures of, you know, Charlie being Charlie and, you know, the mules. I think another fairly significant factor was that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia doubled their support for the program uh, in about 1985. And it was actually my privilege to interpret for um, Director Casey and King Fahad uh, during a, a key conversation in the spring of 1985, when they agreed to each side uh, doubling their uh, support for the program. It was quite an interesting session. <clears throat> Director Casey, God bless him, was hard to understand. And actually, I had uh, better luck understanding Fahad sometimes than I did <laughs> Casey. <laughs> and so in anticipation of this meeting, I talked to um, Director Casey's uh, chief of staff into letting me sit in on the prep session so I could hear Director Casey speak and have some idea what the content of the, the conversation was going to be like. And I'll never forget, his first line was, Alafi is on a roll. Well, of course, that's very idiomatic English. It doesn't really translate very easily into Arabic. But at least I had kind of 24 hours to think about it and, uh, and know what I was going to say in Arabic. Fahad wanted the session where he agreed to doubling the support to be only eight eyes, only four people. And so it was Casey, myself, Fahad, and a note taker. And Fahad specifically wanted an American to be the interpreter. And so we got through that session. He agreed. And then a larger group of people joined us for uh, the rest of the session which was held in um, the Ambassador Prince Bandar's uh, residence uh, there in Northern Virginia. But it was wow. uh, quite a historic uh, session, and I actually got a pat on the knee by uh, King Fahad after it was over. Wow. 
I, I, we need to speak some more about this, Jim. That's re- that's really really fascinating because that's a you know going back to the what made the difference. That time period is when you see the the pendulum begin to swing. Right, it's like eighty five, eighty six. That's when you see the pivot where it's you know are we just are we just arming these people for them to be killed or then it becomes these people can drive the soviets out so i think that that's a really interesting period and it's so interesting you had that experience i actually wrote a book chapter on casey a few years back and i just find him such an such an interesting figure again and i remember you know you you'll have heard this one before but the joke was that he didn't need a scrambler um because he he mumbled and the soviets would never understand him he was sometimes hard to understand but God bless Bill Casey. He was a tremendous director. Uh, he did a lot for the nation. He did a lot for the agency. He was a uh, devout Catholic. Uh, he was a voracious reader. On the few times that I traveled with him, he was always going to mass somewhere in the country that he visited. And he always wanted to go to a bookstore and collect literally an armload of books. I don't think he actually slept very much. I think he did a lot of reading uh, on all kinds of topics Um during his off hours. Yeah, really fascinating figure. I mean, even the course of his life, it's just so interesting what he done and the types of things that he was involved with. He was just a, yeah, just a really, really fascinating director to me. He was in the OSS, of course, and he was um, in charge of analysis in London up until D-Day. And then after D-Day, he actually became in charge of operations in um, occupied or newly liberated Europe. And he's actually written a book about it, which is quite good. And one of the interesting things was that guys who were being dropped behind the lines in occupied Europe were being overtaken by Patton's um, Third Armory so quickly that they became pathfinders. They weren't intelligence collectors anymore. But he's written a very readable book um, about all of those events. Yeah, really, really fascinating figure. Andrew, what kind of conclusions do you draw when you look, you know, beyond 1979 to 1985, when you look at 9-11, the so-called end of the Cold War and an end of the future? What kind of lessons learned do you draw? I think lessons learned, um, you know, one of them, I don't say this with any kind of joy, but one of them would be if you just look at the Soviet-Afghan war and do a very basic study of it, it tells you the the difficulty of fighting an insurgency that has a 1,500-mile border with a safe refuge that's ostensibly an ally, but that sometimes gets involved in all of the internal politics, which is exactly what we saw during the post-9-11 war in Afghanistan. For me, this is easy to say in hindsight, right? And I wasn't making these decisions, but to me, if you look at the Soviet-Afghan war, and spend spend a bit of time studying it, you just immediately think that it has to be, if we go in, it has to be super limited or there has to be a strategy not to replicate what the Soviets done. I think that that's, that's one of them. Um, yeah, I think another one would be if you're, it's so difficult to anticipate the second or third order effects of actions that you're taking in the present. So to go back to Vince Canistraro's point, 
you know, the the ripples in time. Um, if you're involved in the an operation cycle and you're not thinking about what's going to happen a generation from now, you're just thinking the US is on the back foot. There's an energy crisis. We seem to have a lack of leadership. The Soviets are on the move. They've they've really crossed the line here by invading this country, and we need to sock it to them and you know give them give them as much of a bloody nose as we can. So, and and that's not just for intelligence officers. I think that's just for anybody that's involved in world politics. Um, you know, there's you can do what you can do in the moment, and then you're always going to you're always going to suffer from the the people that come along after you that have a different. Uh, that have a different operating system in terms of their values and their culture and the context that they live in, and they're going to second guess what you've done previously. That doesn't mean to say that everybody always gets off with doing whatever they want to do, but I think as a historian, it just sensitized me to trying to get people to, yeah, just to think about how other human beings, whether that be intelligence officers or policymakers, encountered the world around them. You know, I think one of the great strengths of CIA's uh, Near East and South Asia Division was that, at least during my generation, most of us were there for a 30 or 35 year career. Also, in addition to the um, basic operational training, we spent an awful lot of time on what we called language and area studies. And so we had quite a, not a large cadre, but a cadre of some really deep Middle East experts who had spent most of a lifetime living and working and studying in that area of the world. And I think we're in a much better uh, position to kind of give whatever administration the long view on what was happening and what the impacts might be. One of the strengths and weaknesses of our own country is that we tend to do politics in four-year cycles, and that doesn't tend to give you uh, the chance to take the long view. Uh, I I think you're right. And I think that you could say the United States, but you could also say the, de- the democratic system of government, where there is a there's a continual recalibration of political power every four or five years, which means that people think in those sorts of um, those sorts of uh, timeframes. So, I, th- I think that 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 long view is really really important, and thankfully, at various points in the system, I think that enough people come through, you know. It's a big country. There's lots of really wicked smart people here. There's lots of really great schools. And despite some of the the vagaries of um, democracy or institutions, there there does seem to be enough smart people that get into enough important positions that some of that context does get through. Not always, but I feel like, you know, just thinking about Brzezinski and Carter. I mean, Carter's Brzezinski's basically given Carter like a, you know, here's the grand sweep of world politics and the role that the Soviets are playing. I mean, they're not, they're not just how is this going to play out and uh, you know <laughs> how is this going to play out in uh, Iowa. They're they're they are thinking about the big picture. Andrew, let me um, switch subjects on you just a little bit. You are the historian and curator at the International Spy Museum. I'm delighted to say that AFIO did its last symposium at the museum two days before the grand opening in 2019. And my family and I were actually privileged to um, attend the grand opening. Uh, 
It was a lot of fun. My kids really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, what kind of things are you doing today? Um, what would our um, viewers be interested in uh, hearing about uh, that's going on at the International Spy Museum these days? Yeah, absolutely. And the last time we spoke, Jim, um, you know, our, our founding executive director, Peter Ernest, was still with us. And that's another sad loss that's certainly been felt deeply around around here. And I know that you knew him well. Um, I, well, some of, some of the things that we're doing here, which are quite exciting. So since I came on board, I took over SpyCast. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is to try to internationalize it a little bit more. So the United States, that's that's the majority of our listeners. That's going to be our core audience. You know, they're very, very important and we're always going to cater to them. But as you know better than anybody, you know, American intelligence doesn't exist in a vacuum. It relies on people like yourself that know languages and cultures and and um histories of various parts of the world so uh, i'm trying to just bring a little bit of that to spy castle last year i was really proud of um getting a former head of india's research and analysis wing on and we're going to have a uh, a head of hopefully a couple of other Asian countries on particularly soon. I don't want to say it yet because it's not in the bag, but I'm hoping to get them. So I want to try to just give SpyCast listeners a picture of different things that are happening around the world. In terms of things that we've got going on right at this moment uh, institutionally, we've got a pop-up exhibit on Operation Hake, so a US-Colombian operation to rescue hostages, including one of the current presidential candidates in Colombia, Christina Betancourt. So that's that's taking place. Um, we're going to be redesigning the George Washington Gallery. Um, we have some really great stuff there. So there's lots of exciting things happening here. And I think that at the moment we are, we're also trying to just, you know, we're adjusting out of COVID because you were at the opening, we were going gangbusters. COVID happened, we closed, all of the staff have been furloughed at some point, um, you know, things were extremely difficult, um, it was difficult to be in the museum business, but we're, we're back now where there's a lot of life in the place, we are really passionate about our mission of trying to help the public understand intelligence and espionage, because it's just too important for the public not to have some understanding of it, so for me anyway you know i'm a i'm a believer like i believe in the mission and and that's what gets me up out of bed um i love trying to tell people about it i love trying to educate them about it i love getting them to think differently about it so those are some of the things that i'm doing and and j just briefly for the podcast as well i wrote an article a few years back on oral history and the cia so speaking to former intelligence officers. And one of the things that I'm trying to bring to the podcast is I'm trying to humanize intelligence officers because to me and, and the broader public, the, you know, just from movies or the media, you know, it's either, I don't know, there's a tendency to see them as very black or white um, or to say that they're one thing or there's something else. But 
you know, these are these are human beings that are that 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 have, there's a variety of different textures to them that have hopes and dreams like everybody else. And I mean, if you want to criticize them or U.S. foreign policy or a covert action, you know, go ahead. But at least understand a little bit more what you're talking about. Uh, that's that's my view. So I want to try to just humanize and put a face on um, this very misunderstood and much maligned world that is just extremely important. Well, I sincerely hope as a result of our um, joint efforts that we can put a more human face uh, on intelligence, on intelligence officers. Andrew, as I think you uh, know, a segment of our viewership and listenership are students, both high school and college students, some of whom aspire to entering the U.S. intelligence community at some future date. You know that AFIO has an outreach program um, to academia, and I know the International Spy Museum does as well. Do you have anything that you'd like to say to students who might aspire to uh, joining the intelligence community uh, in the future? Yeah, I one of them, one of them, I would say, would be continue listening to Afio, and uh, also I would suggest Spycast, um, the the Spy Museum's podcast. Recently, we've started putting up further resources, primary documents, other podcasts, documentaries. So just educate yourself. You know, don't be naive. Go in with as much knowledge as you can, without you know, going through that process of being initiated and formally welcome to the fold. So educate yourself on that front. Also, I would say the first thing that you should probably do every morning is read the international uh, pages of the Times or the Post or the Journal or subscribe to The Economist, some quality news outlet, because it's it's, it's an international game. Um, even... Even what the FBI do here on American soil, it's the you know they're chasing international people by and large. So it's a very international game. The more you know about the world, the more that you think about the world, um, the better. Um, think about something that you may want to specialize in. What really interests you is there a particular region, and that's not to say that you know you want to be that you have to commit your whole life to that, but. I think it, to me, it's quite interesting if someone comes along and they say, you know what, I've just became really fascinated in Russia and I've I've been reading Russian literature and I've been reading about Russian history and watching, watching Russian movies. That says to me that, you know, there's that, that there's something about this person. So you want someone that's, that's a, a male wide, um, but you also want someone that can focus in on particular issues. If you just... It's like if you say, if you defend everything, you defend nothing, right? But if you defend one little part of the wall with everything you have, you're also defending nothing. So just think about that combination of breadth and depth. But I would definitely say get up to speed on international affairs, um, go to talks, um, read the newspapers, subscribe to The Economist or some other quality publication and just you know, just educate yourself and arm yourself. If you're an if you're an analyst, the more that you know about that type of stuff, the better for being an analyst. And if you're a case officer, um, for certain, you know, different parts of the world, hiding in plain sight, um, being attuned to the cultural mores, the almost the music of a particular setting, whether that be 
um, you know, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Nicaragua, whatever. The more that you can get a feel for that music of of another culture and another context, then the better. So there's lots of different things that you can do, but continue to be inquisitive and continue continue to educate yourself. Well, happily, uh, because of our joint efforts and the efforts of others, there's just a lot more public information available to um, U.S. citizens and others about intelligence and the U.S. intelligence community. When I joined the agency over 50 years ago, there was very, very little uh, public information available. Um, and I'm happy to say that that has really changed significantly um, in the intervening period. The book is called Struggles for Freedom, Afghanistan and U.S. Foreign Policy Since 1979. It will be coming out later this year. And I really want to thank um, Dr. Andrew Hammond and the International Spy Museum for an exceedingly interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to speak to you.